Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. Uh, also coming up, this is coming up actually next Sunday, November 6, 4 p.m., uh, we're doing a afternoon of prayer and praise to pray for our nation, our communities, our congregations. Um, I believe we have four or five different congregations coming together. We have to do music. We have a bunch of pastors coming in to lead through times of prayer. And as always, this isn't to exalt or to, to, to kind of put up a political party or a politician. We're just coming together to praise and worship the Prince of Peace, and to pray for our communities and um, our nation. Now, I do have a, a, another request. Uh, next, that's next Sunday. The day before, next Saturday, we're doing a book signing for the book that myself and three other pastors wrote called Unwrapping Christ This Christmas. It's at Wagner's Restaurant in Elizabeth, but I need you guys to pray. Here's why. I don't, I don't care if people don't buy it. That, that's not the reason. Um, as you know, Wagner's restaurant, it's not in a church, it's in a restaurant. So there are going to be people there who some don't know Christ, who some aren't crazy about Christmas, who some who think Christmas is not just about Christ. So what I want you guys to do is pray that God gives us wisdom and insight. So as we do talk to people, that we're not trying to beat them over the head with the Bible, we're not trying to get them into our church, that we just want to, as God leads, have God-honoring conversations about Christmas and celebrating it in a God-honoring way. Does that make sense? Because it can very easily just not go well. So I'm praying that you guys, plus we want to be, we want to honor uh, Stacy and Glenn who allowed us to use their restaurant to have this book signing. Uh, we don't want them to be deemed as coming across as forcing their faith onto other people either. So just be in prayer. Also, if you haven't bought a copy, don't buy it online. I think online it's $14. When we sell it there, it's going to be 10 bucks. So if you're, how much? $14.99. Yeah, $14.99 online or whatever. But if you buy it there, it's like uh, 10 bucks, just straight 10 bucks, tax included, all that stuff. So if you're interested, get a copy. If not, let me know and we'll get signed copies for you. All right, as you are making your way back to your seats and getting situated this morning. We're continuing in our series in Daniel. Uh, and although it's going to sound like a repeat of the sermon from two weeks ago, it's not, uh, but it kind of is. Uh, let me ask, does anyone remember like when your parents had to repeat stuff to you and like before you would get it down? Uh, maybe, I don't know how they worded it. My mom actually worded it as like, don't make me have to repeat this. And then I knew that was something I needed to, to pay attention to. Uh, so this is what, what God does with Daniel. Um, he repeats this vision that he gave to Daniel. He gives it to him again with a little bit more detail. Uh, but this makes it, like, obviously something that we need to pay attention to. Because here's, here's the thing. This is important. Whenever God repeats himself, it's a sign for God's people to pay attention. Who would, who would think that makes sense? right? If God's going to say it again, obviously this is something that we need to listen to, 
that we need to pay attention to. It's like if you're reading through the Gospels and you get to the part where Jesus says, and I say to you again, right? Maybe that's a time when we, you know, put the phone down, hush the kids, and we're like, let me, let me make sure I'm paying attention to this because that means that it's probably important, right? So this is what um, God does with Daniel. He reiterates the vision that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so if you want to follow along again, we're in Daniel chapter 8, but I'm going to put uh, for this, uh, again, the verses up on screen, because they're going to kind of help expound on this, this kind of prophecy vision thing that Daniel has, right? And I'm going to put it in the amplified version, because it's going to explain a lot of the language, right? Uh, but if you want to follow along, Daniel chapter 8, uh, in Daniel chapter 8, this is what it says in verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after one that appeared to me at the first. So the first vision that he talks about uh, was in the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Let me make sure I got that right. Yeah, in the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So this is in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So it's two years later. Some time has passed. God's going to give him the same vision again. Uh, here's what happens. And I saw in the vision, and it seemed... Now, these just don't get jumbled up by these words that he's using. I'll explain them in a minute. And it seemed that I was at Shushan, the palace or fortress in Susa, the capital of Persia, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was by the river Ulai. Right? Now, those words don't need to make a lot of sense to us. And I made sure I wanted to read this to you so I didn't get it right, get it wrong. So Daniel, at the time, he has this vision. He's in Babylon which is modern-day Iraq, right? People have heard of Iraq, right? We know where Iraq is? Okay. In the vision that God gives him, he sees himself in modern Persia, which is modern-day Iran. So Iraq and Iran, two different places. He's in modern-day Iraq. He sees himself in Persia, which is modern-day Iran. Now, there's a reason why God shows him himself in that palace, in the capital of Persia. Because God's about to give him a vision that shows that Persia is going to come in and they're going to overtake the kingdom of Babylon. But just as he serves in the capital in Babylon, because he serves that king, God's going to show him that, hey, when the next kingdom comes in, you're going to work in the capital there because you're going to serve that king. And that may not make a lot of sense, but for a lot of us, especially as we approach the election, need to get that understanding that it doesn't matter who's in power now, doesn't matter who comes in in power on November, was it 6th or 8th or whatever election day is, our job as the church doesn't change. We still have the same job, regardless of which governor comes into power, uh, regardless of who's in charge of the Congress or who's in charge of the Senate, the people of God have the same job. Does that, that make sense to everyone? Okay. And, and unless you happen to be in politics, then yeah, your job is going to obviously change. All right? So here's, here's, here's what happens next. He says, and I lifted up my eyes and I saw and behold, there stood before the river a single ram, which had two horns representing two kings of Medo-Persia, Darius the Mede, then Cyrus. 
And the two horns were high, but one, Persia, was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how historically, history, it's not, this is not the Bible making this up. Historically, we know for a fact that the, the, the nation of the Medes and the Persians, they joined together to form the Medo-Persian Empire, right? And initially, the Medes were the more prominent, more powerful but then over time, uh, the Persians became more prominent and more powerful under Cyrus, right? And, and, and we'll get to some more about Cyrus in a minute, but let me, let me just share this with you. I looked and saw the ram, Medo-Persia, pushing and charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him, neither could anyone rescue from his power, but he did according to his own will and pleasure and magnified himself. Now, there's a reason that the Medo-Persian Empire became so powerful under King Cyrus. Now, again, bear with me historically, but this was written, this was written around 550, 551 BC, and anyone can go and look historically on when Belshazzar, whatever his name was, was the king over Babylon, and how long his reign was. And you can look historically and see that uh, his reign ended. We're going to read about that in a couple of weeks. His reign ended, and then the Medo-Persians came in and took over it around 550, 551 BC. What we're about to read is about 200 years before that, somewhere 700 to 740 BC, right? Because this is what Isaiah writes, okay? Bear with me, this is going to make sense. This is what the Lord says. This is Isaiah writing to the people of Israel, your redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, spreads out the earth by himself, foils the signs of false prophets, make fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise, turns them to nonsense. This is God making his claim to the people of Israel. Hey, I alone am God. I'm sovereign. There's no need for you to doubt me. And here's what he tells the people of Israel, right, in 7 to 740 BC, somewhere in that time frame. He says that I'm not God, the same God who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. So 200 years, more than 200 years before Cyrus was even born, God told the people of Israel, I'm going to raise up Cyrus. And in case anyone thinks, well, this is just another Cyrus, he says specifically that he is going to say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and let its foundations be laid. And in the book of Nehemiah, somewhere around 530, 510, somewhere around there, BC, Cyrus tells Nehemiah, yeah, go back, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and he funds that expedition. So 200 years before, this is God saying, hey, I'm going to use this guy who doesn't even exist now, and I'm going to use him to fulfill my purposes. Now, there's more. Hold on. There's more. This is what he says in chapter 45, verse 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you, and I will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. This is, this is 200 years before God saying, I'm going to use Cyrus, and he is going to just run through and ramshod over all of the other nations. 
And then 200 years later, like we read in Daniel, God gives Daniel a vision, even though Cyrus hasn't come to power yet, of Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire doing just that. And wait, there's still more. This is what he says in verse 34. I will give you hidden treasures, richer stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. And here's why he says he does this. This is, this is really important. He says that he does this for the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen. I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you don't acknowledge me. This is God acknowledging, hey, I am going to use Cyrus. I'm going to use other kings. I'm going to use uh, this king who doesn't even exist yet, hundreds of years before he's born. He says, I'm going to use him for my purposes, for my people, so that he knows that I am God. And if we, like we've been reading through Daniel, uh, God has been using Daniel to proclaim to king after king after king that, hey, there is a God in heaven And even though you're in a position of power, you need to get right with him. So it doesn't matter, you know, which, uh, and we're we're, we're in that same position because we struggle with, well, we want, you know, if you're a a, a Democrat, you want the Democrats to stay in power. If you're a Republican, you want the Republicans to pay in power or get in power. But if you're a Christian and and we're concerned about our nation, just like Daniel was, just like Isaiah told uh, the Israelites, because they were, and, and the same message that God gives to Isaiah and that he gives to Daniel, he gives to us. Hey, I am the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things. If this is true and God could proclaim 200 years beforehand that I'm going to use this king to fulfill my will, then we should take a little bit of solitude in the fact that, yeah, God could use, and forgive my language, but some of the crazy people that we see running for office today. That it's not going to stop the purposes or the plans of a sovereign God. Right? Does that, does that make sense to everyone? And here's, here's, here's the reality, because we've said this before. Um, this is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? Because there's a lot of us that are like, I don't know if even God can deal with some of the people that are going into office. And here's, here's the response that he gives. It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled the starry host. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says Lord Almighty. He's going to do it because God said so. And again, you can go and do whatever research you want to verify that the book of Isaiah, written around between 700 740 BC, Cyrus didn't come to power until like 5 whatever it was, 30 or whatever BC. And then I think it was 537 or 538 BC, he actually wrote out the command that said, set the Israel's free, send them out of captivity back into Jerusalem to build the kingdom. That same God who's trying to give peace to them, who's trying to give peace to Daniel about what's coming, is trying to give peace to us today that he is still sovereign over the affairs of men. And we've said this before, and we've got to say it again, no matter which political leaders are in power or which nations are fighting for power, God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom that will not pass away. His will, his desire for his people won't be changed 
because certain people are in office or because certain people are not in office. Does that make sense? Okay, so now here's the thing, though. He's going to tell, hey, and there was some good stuff that happened because the Medo-Persians came over and because of some of the other kingdoms that took over, but there's also some bad things that happened, right? And we're, we're going to read about those, so hopefully you're the kind of people that likes the good news first and then, and then the bad news. So back in Daniel, this is what Daniel said, as I was considering... As Daniel was kind of way all this in about God revealing, here are the nations that are going to come and take over Israel, and you're going to be a part of serving this nation. He was considering that. He says, behold, a he-goat, the king of Greece, came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous and remarkable horn between his eyes, symbolizing Alexander the Great. And he came to the ram that had the two horns, which is the Medo-Persian Empire, which I had seen standing on the bank of the river, and ran at him in the heat of his power. In my vision, I saw him come close to the ram, Medo-Persia, and he was moved with anger against him. And he, Alexander the Great, struck the ram, broke his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But the goat threw him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Now, this is significant. I want to I share something really quick. Um, this was an unprecedented defeat of the Medo-Persians. If, if you look, and again, if you Google it, and if you paid attention in class, which I did not, but if you Google it, I, I think the Medo-Persian Empire had like a, an army that was like 200,000 people strong, which we think isn't a lot, but at that time, to have 200,000 men in your army was a lot. There are some people that say it was more like closer to 500,000 or a million. Don't know that there's a lot of truth to that, but there was verification that he had at least 200,000 people. Medo-Persian army. That's how they were able to go through and dominate all these other kingdoms. Alexander the Great had 35,000, which is why it was unprecedented that he was going around and defeating all these armies. And when he came up against the Medo-Persian army, no one thought that the Alexander the Great, that his army would prevail, and they thrashed them. I mean, they thoroughly, like, obliterated the Medo-Persian army. And then he went on and, and conquered all these other nations, and it got so much so, and uh, again, if you watch the movie, I don't know if the movie is quite accurate, but it's pretty good. But if you watch the movie, there were nations that when they saw him coming, they would just surrender. They would hear, oh, Alexander, he's now turned his sights on us. Here's how we're going to surrender. They wouldn't even get their armies ready to fight because of the way that he obliterated the Medo-Persian Empire. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, now this, again, not historically true, but there, uh, I think it's in the Jewish uh, customs that say this, that uh, when he was coming, I think, believe it was out of Lebanon, and they heard he was coming to Jerusalem, the high priest said, hey, we, we need to, I don't know if we're going to surrender, but this is what we're going to do. Uh, and he had all of the priests line up outside the gate in white robes. And when Alexander the Great approached, he got off of his horse and he approached the high priest, and he bowed down to him. And his generals were like, why are you bowing down to this high priest? We could totally like, take this city with just a, a, a handful of our army. And Alexander the Great said, I'm not bowing down to this priest, but to the God he serves, 
because Alexander had had a dream that when he approached one of the cities, that there would be men lined in white robes and that he was not to destroy that city, but that God would give it into his hands. And so when he approached and saw all the, the priests lined in white robes, he bowed down not to the priests, but to God. Doesn't mean he was a Christian. He was just acknowledging that he believed his dream was divine. Now, here's the other thing he did, and we talk about this. As he conquered all these known places, one of the things he did is something that no other nation had been able to do. He unified the languages across the known world. Greek became one of the, the, the not one of the, the uh, main language for the known world. Everywhere they conquered, like the Medo-Persians, they were like, hey, you can keep your Hebrew, you can keep your culture this, you can keep your that. The Greeks were like, nope, Greeks is now your language, you need to learn Greek. Anyone had to take like Greek and Latin in school? And I'm like, what for? Anyone bump into anyone today that speaks Greek? I mean, there are people that speak it, but it's not like it's something that we needed to learn, but they made it mandatory. As a result of it being mandatory, here's one of the things that happened, right? Uh, and, and, and if you guys don't remember this story, you will as we roll into Christmas, because that's when people talk about it. Uh, in Matthew chapter 2, this is what it says. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or astrologers from the east, came to Jerusalem asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east at its rising and have come to worship him. How many people remember this account from the Christmas stories about the three wise men? Well, we say three, but we don't know that there were three. We say three because these wise men from the east, they came from the area of Persia. The reason why they knew about the star and what it would represent is because of the fact that the Old Testament, as one of the prominent religious books, had to get translated into Greek. Since it was translated into Greek, everyone could read it, including the astrologers. And when they read it, they understood that, hey, they understood who Jesus was going to be. And we think three wise men because they brought three gifts. They brought gold, which is a gift for a king, because they knew that the word of God said that Jesus would be king. They brought frankincense, which is a gift for a priest, because they knew that Jesus would be the high priest of all the people, and they bought myrrh, which is a gift for a funeral, because they knew that Jesus would die for all humanity, right? So this allowed, this happened because of the influence of Alexander the Great and unifying the people and making Greek the language of the day. Now, here's the thing, though, uh, and I'm going to wrap this up because we all love, trust God, and we're like, yeah, this is great when things are good, but we also have to trust God when things in our nation aren't going well, right? When there are people in power who are persecuting people, who are not doing things in a godly way, whether they be evil or whether they just be, for lack of a better term, knuckleheads, whatever the case is, we still have to trust God. And we're about to see that because God's going to reveal that to Daniel Excuse me, in an amazing way. So here's what we read. Back in Daniel, Daniel chapter 8. He says, And the he-goat, Alexander the Great, magnified himself exceedingly, and when he was young and strong, the great horn, he was suddenly broken. 
And history records, and I forget the age, I think it was at 31 or 32, that Alexander the Great died at 30, like in his early 30s. I think it was before 33. It was like 31 or 32 years old. He had started in his early 20s, 22, 23, and had conquered most of, almost all of the known world at that time, unprecedented, and done it so fast, faster than many of the other nations. But when he was in his prime, he died, and instead of him, there came up four notable horns to whom the kingdom was divided, one towards each of the four winds of the heavens. Now, again, this is written before Alexander the Great was born. This is written 200 years before he would come in and take power and do any of that stuff. And because of this specific prophecy, even though there's, there's this historical information to show when this was written, a lot of people who are opposed to the things of God said, well, this is so accurate that we're just going to say it wasn't written around uh, five-something B.C. It was written around 100 B.C. And the only reason they give is because there's no way that that could be true, that he could have that much information. But we know the way that it's true is because the same God who revealed the truth about Cyrus to Israel is the same God who revealed this truth. And we know historically, Alexander the Great, when he died, uh, his four generals took over, uh, they took over his kingdom and uh, uh, separated amongst themselves. And this is where it gets a little harsh for the people of Israel, because until then, uh, they weren't under a lot of uh, mistreatment and persecution. Uh, but here's what happens next. Out of littleness and small beginnings, one of them, one of the descendants of the four generals, came forth, Antiochus Epiphanes, a horn whose impious presumption and pride grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the ornament, the precious blessed land of Israel. And here's what happens. So out of those four generals, one of the descendants of them, Antiochus Epiphanes, basically uh, went on a, a, a tirade to try to overtake more territory, he lost and decided, I'm going to take it out on the people of Israel. And he went on a rampage and a war against the people of Israel. Right? And it says, in my vision, this horn grew great even against the host of heaven, God's true people, the saints, and some of the host and of the stars, priests, it cast down to the ground and trampled on them. So now what happens, what we're going to see is, is yes, he, he, he had this tirade against the people of Israel. He started persecuting them. He waged war on them. If you read, uh, it's not in the Bible. Uh, I think some of the Catholic Bibles and some other Bibles have the book of Maccabees, First and Second Maccabees, that talk about some of the battles and the wars that took place then because they're historically true. It happened. But now what God's going to do is say, hey, this, this, this tirade and this rage towards the people of Israel that Antiochus Epiphanes had, it's going to be mirrored in the last days by the Antichrist because he says this. Sorry, my thing didn't... There we go. He says, yes, this horn magnified itself, even matching itself against the prince of the host of heaven. And from him, the continual burnt offering was taken away and the place of God's sanctuary was cast down and profaned. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes did go in to the, the temple and sacrifice a pig to Zeus because he thought himself a manifestation of Zeus, but he didn't do it against the prince of the host of heaven, which is Jesus. 
So here this thing happened, but it's going to be a picture of what the Antichrist is going to do because he's not going to just rage in, in the name of Zeus. He's going to rage and proclaim himself to be God, right? Because Antius of Epiphanes never did this against the prince of the host of heaven. Uh, but it says this, and the host, the chosen people, were given to the wicked horn together with a continual burnt offering because of, here's why, in the end times, the people are going to be turned over to the Antichrist. Here's specifically why this is going to happen. Because of the transgression of God's people, their abounding irreverence, their ungodliness, and lack of piety. And if you look in other books of the Bible, they talk about we're coming uh, before the Antichrist comes to power. There's going to be this great falling away. There's going to be people leaving the churches in droves. There's going to be this lack of reverence for God. There's going to be this increase in ungodliness. And we're seeing it today. Every day, we don't move closer to people returning to God. We move closer and closer to more people giving whatever reason they want for just leaving the churches, for their ungodliness, for their irreverence of God, and their lack of faith in God. And now, here's the thing. All of these things, except for the ones you know, that are in the end times, we've seen come to pass. All of these things that Isaiah said would happen, they happen. All of the things, actually not all, uh, I think it is 75% of the visions that Daniel said he had about politics, about when Jesus would come, about when uh, the, the city of Jerusalem would be restored. All of these things have come to pass. The only 25% uh, remaining visions he had were specifically about the Antichrist and the end times. And if all these other things came to pass, Shouldn't we trust that all this other stuff will come to pass too? And here's the thing. If we've seen uh, from Isaiah, from Daniel, that much of God's word is true, it lines up with history, shouldn't we believe the rest of God's word to be true? Um, Job said this. He said, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is Job who said that after he lost his home, he lost his family, he lost his entire business, he lost his children, he was mourning, crying, and then he was covered with, with, with uh, uh, um, rashes and, and scraping himself with pots and pus rolling down his body, and he was angry at God, but he still said, I still trust in God. And if he can do that, shouldn't we still be able to trust God? Even though the people we may not want to come to power may not get voted in, uh, the economy may not be doing as great as we think it should, but shouldn't we still be able to trust that God is able? This is what Paul wrote in Colossians, and we're going to wind down with this. He says, for him, uh, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. We've just seen where God has declared that to be true through Isaiah, through Daniel. He said, hey, it doesn't matter which king comes to power. I'm going to use them so that my will will be fulfilled. It doesn't matter who wins the senatorial race, uh, the congressional race, the gubernatorial race. It doesn't matter who's in power uh, at the West Jefferson Hill School Council or any town council. God is still sovereign. And his will can still be done if we as the people of God are still willing to trust him. 
I'm going to ask you guys to stand, and we're going we're, we're to close out with this prayer because this is what Daniel says. He says, that, and this is what we need to remember, no matter what happens, when the end comes, the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. So God, we, 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 we realize we're coming into a time when tensions are high, where your people are struggling to understand your will. Because some in one party think that one thing should happen, some in another party think that another thing should happen. But our prayer today is that regardless of what happens, regardless of what the election reveals, regardless of who's in the Senate, regardless of who's in the Congress, regardless of who the governor is, that we would trust that your will will be done. That as Job said, that there is nothing that can thwart or change your purpose. But we pray that you would speak to our hearts on how we vote, on how we treat those who vote differently than us, and on how we share your word and your will with folks in our circles of influence. God, we pray that we would remember that we are your ambassadors, your representatives of your kingdom, and that this is our temporary home. And while we are extremely grateful to be a part of this nation and this political process, we are even more blessed to be a part of your kingdom. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. 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 Uh, thank you, guys. Pray that you have an awesome uh, rest of your Sunday. God bless. And... Uh, See everyone next week. Hopefully we'll see you guys at the prayer and praise next weekend and at the book signing at Wagner's Restaurant next Saturday. God bless.